I've advocated every org should have a scale unit, and in that scale unit will be a naysayer or a person saying, I don't think that idea will work, and I'm going to generate data to show that it doesn't work. That person will come up with what, what people call some moderators. They'll show in which types of settings it doesn't work in, and that will cause you to make a better product or service. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from John List, an American economist and author of the new book, The Voltage Effect, how to make good ideas great and great ideas scale. A longtime professor at the University of Chicago, John has also worked both in government and in the private sector, including as chief economist for Uber, Lyft, and now Walmart. In his book, he argues that scaling is subject to the so-called Anna Karenina principle, meaning that even if one factor is wrong, the entire endeavor will fail. John explores many ways business leaders can assess whether an idea has the power or the voltage, in his phrasing, to successfully scale. Today, he speaks with Yuval Atzman, a senior partner in our London office. Now, here's Yuval. John... Tell me a little bit more about what motivated you to write a book about scaling and how that related to a lot of the different experiences you have had over the last um, 25, 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. So right around 2015, there was a confluence of events that caused me to start thinking about scaling. On the one hand, I was the chief economist at Uber. And we were thinking very hard about new ideas and what are the elements of ideas that have a good shot of scaling. And when I, when I say scaling, what I mean is you might start out in one market and you could scale up in that market. That's what I call vertical scaling. Or you could scale across input markets, which would be in the United States, for example, across cities. Now, Right around the same time, I had started a preschool in a city called Chicago Heights, which is just south of Chicago, and it's an underserved community. And by 2014, I had received really good results from that preschool, which was a curriculum for three, four, and five-year-olds. And I started to go to policymakers, and I told them, I have a great curriculum we need to scale my program. And the typical response I would get from them is, you know what, John, your program looks great, but don't expect it to happen at scale. And I said, well, why not? I've been doing field experiments for 25 years. And they sort of hemmed and hawed and said, well, it doesn't feel like it has the silver bullet. So at this point, I'm thinking, well, what is this silver bullet? And I better do some academic work because the way the policymakers are talking is it feels a lot like art to me. It didn't feel like science. So then I hearken back to when I worked in the White House. And I was an economist in the White House thinking about programs like Energy Star, various programs that are trying to make Americans' lives better. And we would constantly think about, do we think that program will scale? So 
these are the three events. And the confluence now leads me to step back and say, what do we know scientifically about scaling? I talk to a lot of VCs, private equity folks, business folks, governments. I read a lot of academic papers and I scoured the journals. And my goal then was to begin to write a bunch of academic papers on the science of scaling. By this time, you know, 2020 rolls around. And what I'm noticing is I'm getting some traction in the academy, but I wasn't getting any attention outside. And if you really want to change the world, you need the whole world at least to kick the tires and take a look at what you're doing. What's really interesting is that the thread of scaling runs through all parts of life and the elements that cause ideas not to scale actually manifest themselves in all of these settings. They just end up being different proportions across these various settings. It's interesting that the firm, uh, McKinsey, we don't use the word scale necessarily, but we use the word impact. And we succeed in attracting individuals that passionately cared about having an impact, impacting the world, impact to their client, in a, in a way, making their ideas and their time matter. And I think that's what your book, in many ways, tries to help everyone to do. Uh, now, you, obviously, you're bringing the science from economics, but you've taken, in some cases, ideas from behavioral economics and applied them uh, against that, that problem. Well, you're 100% right. Let me be clear. Economics is life, and life is economics. So if you're interested in living a better life and changing the world, exactly as you said, you should be interested in this book. The first half of the book is really a self-help book for entrepreneurs, and the back half chapters are for everyone. One thing that struck me when I read your book is how much of it is actually about avoiding mistakes. Because, of course, you kind of capture that in the uh, Anna Karenina principle uh, more broadly? First way I would think about it is when you're in the search phase of an idea or when you're considering to scale an idea, what are the warts that you should look for? It shows you where the weak points or where you should be making improvements. And it does give you then a recipe book when you think about what is the slice of pie or total addressable market, as folks would say? And then what is the best way to expand that? So if there's a wart that the addressable market is just too small, what are some ways we should think about in terms of expanding it before we scale or as we scale, what are the best ways to expand it? I mean, th these are common mistakes that everyone makes. I saw in the White House people making these mistakes. I see in the boardroom, every boardroom, people making the same mistakes. I, I see this again and again. People, they understand the concept and they've heard of it and they can go to the water cooler and talk about it. And they can talk about Danny Kahneman thinking fast and slow they can talk about Dick Thaler's book on nudge, and they can memorize a few buzzwords, 
But humans have a really hard time taking those and applying them to settings that they're currently in or settings that they might be in tomorrow to make their decision making better. I also had, uh, as I was reading your book, I was also thinking about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Much of their success is actually about doing what they know about and avoiding predictable mistakes. So maybe we talk about your first vital signs, um, which you sort of refer to as dupers and false positives, which really I took it as there was never a dare there, <laughs> but you yeah, saw exactly. there is. Yeah. But you thought there is, and you spent a lot of energy uh, on that, you know, false positive. So t- tell us, you know, why is this so common in your in your view? You're exactly right to describe it as there was never voltage to begin with. So you might want to ask, well, why were you tricked? It's kind of a tale of two worlds because in government, you sort of have this idea that once there's a paper out there, and it's published in an academic journal, a lot of times people think, well, that's the truth. And there's no uncertainty or risk around it. And they don't fully understand that the false positive rate is still at least 5%, if not 25 or 30% from this type of study. I would say over half of the cases where government tries to scale an idea, it never had voltage. And when you go back and try to replicate, it doesn't replicate. If you want to think about it from a viewpoint of the data, the data were just lying to you. You you got kind of a bad draw of the data. Now, on the private side, you do have more elements of behavioral economics coming in. And that's where I introduce confirmation bias, where A manager or a decision maker has a notion or an intuition about what should work. And then when you bring that manager back the data, if they say it worked, they say, voila, I was right. Let's scale this thing up. If it says it doesn't work, the data, then the person says, well, there's a flaw somewhere and we didn't collect the right data. Well, what can you do about it? Because in firms, What typically happens is the person with the idea actually will test the idea and they push for that idea and then they alone ship the idea. And then at the end, they get the bonus for the idea. So it's almost like, well, wait a second. Is this the way we want idea generation, dissemination and scaling to happen in our org? I've advocated every org should have a scale unit and in that scale unit will be a naysayer or a person saying, I don't think that idea will work and I'm going to generate data to show that it doesn't work. That person will come up with what what people call some moderators. They'll show in which types of settings it doesn't work in and that will cause you to make a better product or service. It won't. It shouldn't slow things down. It it should happen in the process of idea generation and idea dissemination. And we don't do enough of that in organizations. I mean, we talk about it often on the sort of social side of strategy when we work with big companies that try to balance the confirmation bias and various other biases, you know, the sunflower effect of the sort of highest paid person in the room's opinion always seems to be more right 
than the others and, and various other dynamics. And, and one of the things we, um, we often remind organizations, and I think, again, your book illustrates it nicely, is you have a much, uh, at least from an outside view, you have a much higher odds of failure in coming up with an idea than success, which I think obviously through the scientific method is much more common in academia. But in companies, it's rare that people leave out of a meeting and says, oh, we probably have only a 10% chance of success, which in our research, that's what we kind of seen that most strategies have kind of one to 10. Let's switch to talking about another, there's something there, but it's, it's not as scalable as maybe people assume it could be. That's right. So you've jumped over the first hurdle and you have voltage. Now the question is, is for how many people will that voltage actually be real voltage? And what is the, the size of market, the total addressable market here? Now, part of scaling, of course, is retention of customers. It's not only growth of new customers. So this is about partly what is the stickiness of your idea or service in and of itself. And then after you put your idea or service out there, can you develop incentive regimes or incentive schemes to make your idea stickier. That's the way I want people to think about membership programs and points programs, et cetera. It's essentially an economic mechanism to present to customers that will make them want to come back for more. I think membership programs are viable, but they're only viable for some types of products and services. But in many cases, people believe that membership programs are a silver bullet. And the second way I talk about, you know, kind of know your market is focus groups. And the idea, of course, is the market doesn't exist. So how can I gather information to figure out if this product or service is viable? One way to do it is to look at substitute products in the market. And then we can do what's called hedonic regression analysis to, to take mounds and mounds of data and try to predict what this new good with slightly different features will do in the marketplace. Another way is, of course, invite people into a lab or a room and run a focus group. Now, there are two big issues that people tend not to address when they do focus groups. One is when you bring a group of people in, let's say to, to test out a hamburger, that these are probably hamburger lovers on the one hand, and they're also people who are really open to your product already. So this likely is not the pie that you're selling into. The second issue people tend to neglect or not understand is what are the incentives for a person who comes into a focus group when you ask them, will you buy the hamburger for $4? They say, yes. Would you buy it for $5 if it was introduced? Yes. Would you buy it for $6? Yes. Okay, let's step back. What are the incentives for that person in telling you their demand for the product? I like to think of it as an option value. In asset markets, all the time we have people who pay real money for an options contract. That options contract essentially says, 
in six months, I can buy Google at $2,500 a share, and I pay real money for that option. Think about what a person in a focus group is buying. They're buying an option for a new product for free. They're essentially saying, yes, 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 it's free. And now if you introduce it, I'm better off. My choice set is richer. So I can go ahead and purchase later if I want, but there's no cost if I don't purchase. So this is a free option. We have to understand that these surveys need to be consequential. Yeah, and I think that this is probably something you want to especially watch out for products that, for example, do indeed depend on a much higher price point that people may previously have paid for similar product or other trade-offs. I mean, of course, we're all seeing a revolution in terms of people caring about sustainability. And But 10, 15 years ago, you had so many product launches that failed because there were only a few early adopters that were willing to take the inconvenience or the higher price or various other aspects of those you know, more green goods. You're 100% right, but I also don't want to overestimate people's environmental or do-good preferences. And let me give you an example. So we ran some surveys at a rideshare company, and customers said that they, they will pay real money to get a green car rather than a car that runs on fossil fuels. Their surveys make it look like this can be a very viable market. So we did an experiment in the actual marketplace. And when you charge, say, 50 cents or a dollar more for that car, guess what the demand is then? It goes to zero. It's one thing to state your ambitions and your preferences in a survey. It's a full different thing to state your ambitions and preferences with real money. And what we find is, again and again, at the voting booth, in every market, that stated preference is, in many cases, much different than revealed preferences. And we should always understand that those are two different things. Now, to be clear, your point is right, that 15 years ago, the revealed preferences basically were zero for these types of things. And now they are positive and they're growing. But I would still say right now that it's exaggerated in, in most cases because people are looking at stated preferences rather than revealed preferences. So switching to the, to the, next, to the next hurdle in your uh, book, which is something that is working but is very hard to scale because you have some unscalable ingredients in that. Yeah. And this is now more about was there something special that was in place that gave you the initial success that could never be replicated at scale. Lots of restaurants have just killed it with one restaurant. And EBITDA of a million dollars, and they say, if I could only scale to 50 or 100 restaurants, I'd be cooking. So they give it a go. And a lot of restaurants fail. I can tell you that if the initial success was based on the chef, and that's a unique human, that thing's never going to scale because unique humans don't scale. You can try to put it into a process. Sometimes that works. So if you 
process that unique human in a way, there's a shot. That's happening right now with computer programming. Now, when you talk to folks at MIT and Google, they'll say, look, our machine can program as well as a lot of humans or better. So that's taking what was once a unique element and putting it in a process. If it can scale with ordinary people like me, it's got a shot. You need to figure out early on, what are your non-negotiables? What are the elements that you have to have in place? And when you scale, maybe the rules or regulations or customs when you go across countries, maybe those change. You might have minimum wage laws changing. You, you might have the input market changing. If those elements change and they cause you not to be able to have those inputs at scale, you're dead. So what you should do is understand, does your idea work with those imperfections that you're going to face at scale? And if it does, great. If it doesn't, you need to kick the tires some more and either say, look, I'm only going to scale halfway, which is fine, or I want to improve on that dimension and I want to make sure that the things that are non-negotiables are items I can get at scale. Needless to say, in McKinsey as a consulting firm, we are very acutely aware of the ability, but also the limits of how fast you can scale when you depend on people that do the work. And we need to hire the right people. We need to train them in the right way. There's, you know, there's so much of that you can do at a certain you know, uh, speed of growth. So it is a constraint on our growth. Some really innovative people have put a roadmap in place. So the types of labor that you can hire now can carry out that roadmap. If you had to continue to innovate with new roadmaps, only a few innovators can do that. You talk about unintended consequences or spillovers, you know, things you didn't really, again, you probably could have predicted them if you sort of thought it through. Uh, but they tend to surprise the, um, some of the scaling efforts that end up not so well. Sometimes, by the way, not so well for others, not only the original yeah. scale, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> scale efforts. Yeah, the old negative externality case in economies. A negative externality means that um, two people exchange in a market and it negatively affects a, a third party in important ways. In 1968, the federal government in the United States put a law on the books that said every new car has to have a seatbelt. And what my colleague Sam Peltzman found looking at the first few years of the law, you know, how many lives did it save? What Sam found was there were zero lives saved. And what he argued was people who were wearing seatbelts ended up driving more aggressively. And that undid the safety of the seatbelt effect. So, so that's an individual type of spillover that we can think about. And then you can go all the way to the other side of the extreme and you can talk about market-wide spillovers. I thought it was fascinating. And it also reminded me, another example that we see quite often is when brands need to decide on price promotions. Of course, it's going to create an immediate uplift if the promotion is good and your brand is great. 
but it's also going to change the willingness to pay for the next range of products that you might launch. So you sometimes, you know, might miss the consequences of that. No, that's 100%, but also it, it affects related products that you purchase with that product. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the complementarity in baskets of goods that pe- or services that people buy is, to me, the next frontier of thinking about price relationships. Economists tend to call these own price elasticities and cross-price elasticities. I think in machine learning models, the next generation – is going to do a lot better job in forecasting where we want to take advantage of these interrelationships, where we want to give surplus back to consumers. Yeah, I mean, one of the examples that on this I remember from uh, Bharat Anand's book, The Digital Trap, is the concert tickets uh, being benefiting as a complementarity to the fact that uh, you know music became free in some cases, or at least cheaper uh, digitally. Talking about costs, so the, the sort of final vital sign I heard all you talk about is really around the cost at scale or the ability to benefit from scale to reduce costs. Yeah, so the supply side of scaling is really an interesting area because on the one hand, governmental policymakers and decision makers tend to think about benefits, 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 and think about equity and who's going to get those benefits. Whereas when I talk to firms, most entrepreneurs or firms will start on the supply side. And they'll start by saying, what are the supply side characteristics of this idea? And it kind of makes sense because governments are monopolists. They don't don't need to worry about entry from a competitor. What they need to worry about is making people's lives better. And then they think about cost later, whereas the firm needs to both think about, well, what does a cost trajectory look like for two reasons? One, as you scale, you know you're going to have to go down the demand curve. And you know, as you scale, people are going to have lower and lower willingness to pay for your product. So you know, as you scale to take on more people, you want to shift the demand curve out, of course. So you want to take advantage of the supply side. Now, another reason why firms care so much about it is it can be a barrier to entry. Once you have economies of scale and your idea has important economies of scale, That's a very, very important, let's say, first mover advantage in a marketplace. And the entrant's going to have to have deep pockets to compete in a market to reap the economies of scale that your initial advantage is giving you. So firms are constantly thinking about it through those two lenses. And we can think about our ideas that way, too. If I had to hire 20,000 great teachers... The only way I'm going to find them is if I come to a big shop like Google or or McDonald's or Walmart or wherever and take their good people and say, I want you to be a school teacher for me. Well, what do I need to do to do that? I need to go up the supply curve and I'm going to need to pay them more and more. If I'm trying to scale with unique elements or unique inputs, 
And the only way I can get them is to increase my budget. Now I'm having a supply side problem. So that's how the uniqueness of the inputs and the supply side work together. One example that maybe bring this one particularly to life these days and some of the other hurdles as well is the streaming wars. We have, we, you know, we've seen a very big investment in that space. The amount of spend on content uh, has been growing certainly disproportionately to the amount of eyeballs in theory that are there to watch the content. When you look at streaming, on the one hand, I love it as a consumer. On the other hand, I'm not so sold on it as an investor. And, and the reason why is because both of the, com- the competitive landscape and the fact that when you think about if we're competing for content, the people who are going to be making economic rents are the ones who are giving you that content. They're the scarce resource. They're getting a lot of the surplus. So you have to have true value added with, with your streaming. But what I've observed is in, in that many cases, what they do is replicable. And when it's replicable, it's really hard to make long-run economic rents. In fact, impossible, right, in equilibrium. But in the long run, if it's not very difficult to enter that space and the technology is available, and now we have to compete for eyeballs and compete for content, there, it might not be a great investment opportunity at that point. It's also an example which is very interesting on the dilution principle, that you know, it, you you have the same baseline of good content, and you add mediocre content around it, and people's perception of the overall content goes down. You're exactly right. I wrote an academic paper about 20 years ago, and the paper is titled "The the More Is Less Phenomenon." And what I did is I had 10 baseball cards, so I auctioned off 10 baseball cards as a group. And then in another auction, I used those same 10 baseball cards and added three ones that were defective. And But you'd still think, well, people should bid more because it's the 10 plus the three defective ones, but the defective ones still have economic value. What happens is they bid less. They bid less because they looked at the three defective ones and then interpreted the other 10 as being lower quality as well. And this is what... It's, it's what I call a preference reversal of a different kind because the more is less phenomenon isn't in standard economics, but it's a true behavioral phenomenon. And it's exactly what you just mentioned in some streaming services. Let's switch to what you call the sort of four secrets to high voltage, which is really your advice for execution of ideas that people want to scale. And, and the first one you talk about is incentives. So tell us a bit more about what you've learned about incentives that work. Yeah, absolutely. So when people hear an economist talk about incentives, they right away think he's going to tell us that money is important. And I'm here to tell you, first of all, that money is important. But secondly, the manner in which you present the money is also important. But non-financial incentives are really important, too like social image, social pressure, self-image. So these types of elements give you the recipe for incentives that can scale because social incentives are very important. And when we think about the nature of social incentives, they're all around us. And we need to take advantage of those settings to put in place incentives that can truly scale. Now, 
On the pecuniary side, let's think about bonuses. At the end of the year, you've active, you've worked hard all year, you get your cash. Okay. My approach is there are many cases where it's possible to move the money to the front end. In Chicago Public Schools, I gave teachers $4,000 up front and said, if your students achieve, you can keep the money. But if they don't achieve over that school year, you're going to have to give some of it back. I, I did it in China in a manufacturing plant. I did it in Wisconsin. In every case, people work harder if there's a chance to claw back some of the bonus. Now, what's going on here is I'm leveraging loss aversion. People don't like to lose things. In fact, the ratio is about for every $10 of bonus money in, in losses, it's about $17 in gains. So you're gaining a lot on the margin. Now you can think, well, John, this is not practical because we can't physically give people money and then take it back. But the way I've done it in the past is I provisionally give it to people. So I set up an account whereby they can see it, they can feel it, they can't consume it yet, they can't take it out, but they see it. And if they don't achieve over the year, they see it going down. And that motivates them to work harder. I think it definitely can work for many sales organizations as well. And Absolutely. The, maybe my favorite chapter in your book, partly because selfishly it relates to a lot of work that I, you know, I've been doing in the firm, but is the one that you talk about revolution on, uh, on the margin. Yeah. And again, it's so obvious when you reflect about the fact that you know, things tend to have a nonlinear relationship in terms of return and, inve and, and investment, yeah. while most of us sort of focus on averages. As, as yeah. obvious it is, as it is, it's a really hard thing to apply in practice for most organizations? It's super hard. So kind of rule number one in Economics 101 when I teach it is I say economists think on the margin and other people think in averages and they get it wrong. Lyft, for example, when COVID hit, we had to lower our budgets. And I wrote a memo called the Adam Smith memo that says simple marginal thinking gives you a decision rule on how to cut expenditures and where to cut them importantly. But it's the same thing with scaling. So for example, at Lyft, the driver acquisition team came to me and said, we're thinking about where to put new dollars to advertise to bring in new drivers. So they showed me some data whereby basically said on Facebook, when we place Facebook ads for the last thousand drivers we've brought in, it cost about $500 per driver. Okay. And then they showed me Google ads. And they said, on the Google ads, for the last 1,000 drivers, it cost $700 to bring them in. So they said, we're going to spend the new money on Facebook ads. And I said, well, let's hold on a second here. That's for 1,000 drivers. That's a pretty broad swath. How about if you tell me just the last 25 drivers? Here's what the data said for the last 25. Facebook ads, it cost $1,000 per driver, but for Google ads, it costs 700 per driver. That's thinking on the margin. And that's understanding that fixed cost and sunk cost shouldn't be recognized. And that moving forward with decision-making, 
use as thin of, of cuts of data as you can. Because remember, you're trying to forecast what's going to happen in the next step. It's a better forecast if you use what happened in the last step rather than what happened 25 steps ago. The only way what happened 25 steps ago makes sense is if that was a special kind of regime that you're entering in the next step. A lot of times people say, more data is better. It's not. If you add data from a long time ago that makes the average very different than the margin, it's actually worse to add new data. So that's a conundrum that a lot of people really don't understand and misstate. And if we think on the margin, that should be skewed. It's also our experience that sometimes you can get more value from structuring conceptually the data and then obviously analyzing it than just trying to build very complicated models that yeah. you know, end up telling you what was right before, not necessarily what's going to be right next. That's right. And it would be you know, good to generalize why that's so, again, surprisingly common that people actually escalate their commitment irrespective of the opportunity, just because of the effort that they've already put in place and actually don't know when to quit. In economics, it's called opportunity cost. And we should always, always, always respect and understand opportunity cost of time and opportunity cost of resources. Why humans don't quit enough. There are really two major reasons. One is that society tells us that quitting is repugnant. Now, on the other hand, we neglect our opportunity cost of time. So let me, let me unpack what that means, because that's a lot of economies. So I did a pretty big survey of people who had recently quit their jobs. And I asked them, why did you quit your job? Reason number one, the boss no longer appreciated me. Reason number two, I didn't get the promotion. Reason number three, I didn't get the pay bonus or the raise that I thought. Reason number four, I don't get along with coworkers anymore. Dot, 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 dot. Every reason is about the person's current lot in life. It was never, my opportunity set got better. When you move and pivot from something, you should be just as likely to move or pivot because your opportunity set improves. But we don't think about it because we neglect our opportunity cost of time. So this is science too. Art is winners never quit and quitters never win. That's art. I bring out science here to show you that people don't quit enough. And there's a scientific reason, society and individual decision-making error. And you know when to quit when your opportunity your outside best opportunity dominates your current opportunity. You should periodically take a look around. And we don't because we neglect our opportunity cost of time. People say, look, I've invested so much in this idea. I can't give up on it now. Or I've gone down this hole for so long and I have to have grit. I promise you, if you're digging down a dry well, you can dig another five feet for another five years it's still going to be dry. That's called the sunk cost fallacy. And that causes us to neglect our opportunity set in important ways. And then in the last chapter, you talk about scaling cultures. Again, this is one where 
it's not easy to get right, but uh, it's common to underestimate the importance of it. Oh, gosh. Yes, yes, yes. So as an academic, I never really appreciated the import of organizational culture because the academic life is more like a lone wolf lifestyle. And I really came to appreciate corporate culture sort of because of two reasons. One, my my research team visited some Brazilian villages, and there's a group where people go out and fish in, in teams. And everything based on teams leads to success. So they brought that teamwork back to their community. And it was a community that had great public good provision, where right next door, there was a community where people went out fishing as soloists. And what they brought back to the community was a a solo attitude. And there were many fewer public goods. Now, when you talk about culture, it's important, first of all, to define it. Because culture is a word like critical thinking or creativity, kind of these C words that if you ask 30 people what it means, you'll get 30 different definitions. So to put my definition out there, I think about it in two ways. One, does it allow people to reach their productivity frontier? And two, does it make people feel safe and comfortable and valued? And I think especially with founders that, you know, so much of the culture is mimicking who they are. And so you need to be quite aware of your own style as a leader. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Culture that way. No, no, it's, it's, it's an extension of the person. And in many ways, it needs to be because the founder has great insights. But what I've learned is a lot of times from zero to 100 million or zero to 500 million might be very different from 500 million to 10 billion. And in many cases, it takes a very different individual who can carry both of those off. John, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. With many thanks to John and Yuval and to you, our listeners, for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. As always, we'll share a transcript of the conversation on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. And if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive our alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn via our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room.